Welcome to the Permaculture for the Future podcast. I'm your host, Josh Robinson. The world is full of negative news, and the planet seems to be in an ecological crisis. And this can be downright disheartening and disenfranchising because we feel that there's nothing that each one of us can do as an individual that can make any difference. Well, I'm here to provide a different perspective, to tell a new story. The Permaculture for the Future podcast is all about spreading positive and impactful stories, tips, and ways that each one of us can transition into a regenerative lifestyle where we can make an ecological impact. We talk about simple ways to make lifestyle changes as we interview authors, teachers, and other folks that are collectively healing ourselves and the planet. So if you want to make an ecological impact, stick around because this podcast is for you. Welcome to episode number four of the Permaculture for the Future podcast. I'm your host, Josh Robinson. And on today's show, we are joined by none other than an old friend, Bill McDorman. Bill is the executive director and co-founder of the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, a nonprofit seed conservation organization serving the Rocky Mountain West and beyond. He was the previous director of Native Seed Search in Tucson as well. Now, Bill has also founded three seed companies, including High Altitude Gardens, and co-founded several nonprofits, including the Sawtooth Botanical Garden in Haley, Idaho. He's the author of Basic Seed Saving, which he wrote in 1994, and he and his wife, Belle Starr, former deputy directors of Native Seed Search and the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, created an innovative week-long training called Seed School, Seed School Teacher Training, and Seed School Online, as well as the recent Grain School And they have a new training coming up called Seed and Grain Forum. These courses have graduated over 1,200 seed citizens since the original program began in September of 2010. These also include many seed libraries, growers, and educators. And Bill's latest passion is to bring awareness to organic certification, patented seeds that cannot be saved and which fly in the face of fostering biodiversity and resilient seed systems. Now, I first met Bill in 2005 when he was a keynote speaker at a Master Gardener conference in Flagstaff, Arizona. And Bill got up there to talk about seed saving. Now, this was a topic I wasn't that familiar with at that point in my life, but he spoke with such passion and excitement That from that point on, I could do nothing but think about saving seeds. And when Bill started that first seed school back in 2010, I was lucky enough to drop in for a little while and see how they were doing it. And later on, in around 2012, I was able to take the full seed school up in Los Angeles. And again, mind blowing information for anybody, not just gardeners, but this is about how you can create a regenerative food system. Because if you don't have local sovereignty of seeds, it's really hard to have a sovereign food system. So without further ado, here's Bill to demystify what it means to save seeds. All right. Well, welcome, Bill, to the Permaculture for the Future podcast. I was wondering if you could just share a little bit of your background about what you do and how you do it regarding some of the seed projects that you've been doing for the last <laughs> 40 odd years. <laughs> yeah, I would. Uh, I'd be happy to. I got started when I was in college and I bought a little house and I had my own garden for the first time, my very own garden. Mm. But for the first time, I was going to get a decide everything was going to be planted. You know, my family always gardened, but that wasn't mine. And it really wasn't a problem, but now I get to do it. And so that sent me on this adventure to find the best seeds. I mean, because 90% of the work, you know, happens 
all the way through the season. So you gotta, you gotta have good seeds to start with, or you've wasted all of that. Mm-hmm. And so I started looking around and before I was done, I was at a great land grant liberal arts college at the university of Montana, a lot of smart people around hooked into the world and, um, sort of uncovered this, uh, uh, the, this problem that the world itself was losing diversity. And that was echoed by my neighbor, uncle Vic, who lived next to me on the old North side of Missoula, who said, you know, the old varieties that I used to get out of catalogs, I can't just find anymore. More and more stuff is disappearing. As the catalog companies got bigger and, and slicker and more pictures, the actual varieties that worked in Western Montana disappeared. So that set me on this adventure to try to find stuff that was, had been around, that uh, the gardeners there knew about, that I knew would work really well for me. By the time I got done, we had started a nonprofit, and then we started a little seed company to help pay for the nonprofit. That was the start. Honestly, I thought it was about a three-year project, you know? <laughs> and here that, we are today. I, would dedi- I was on my way to law school, actually. I was going to go to law school. And I thought, oh, I'll detour and, and get this going because we found these seeds. Now we can have a little seed company. We can get them out. We'll get people in there to run it. It'll be a really great. And so I'm still doing the same thing in some ways. Yeah. You know, I just never got back out of it. So what year are we talking about? When were you in Montana there? I was in Montana from 1976 to 1982. Okay. So we started seriously talking about seeds as a community activity in 79. And so we started a little seed company called Garden City Seeds. And it was eventually sold to Irish Eyes, which is still going in Western Washington, Eastern Washington. And so some, I saw their catalog a couple of years ago and some of the, the descriptions of the vegetables in that catalog are ones that my roommates and I wrote way back in the early age. They, they just kept getting carried forward in the catalog year after year after year of these really great varieties of things that we found. So I ended up running another, I, uh, moving home to Idaho after that and starting another seed company called High Altitude Gardens. And I incorporated that after a few years under the name Seeds Trust. Hmm. And so I ran what I called Seeds Trust High Altitude Garden for 28 years. And so... When I first met you. That's what you were doing yeah, down there in Cornville. We had about 20,000 customers at high elevations all over the world because I was at 6,000 feet with no growing season, basically. So what grows there? Well, we've started finding stuff like Siberian tomatoes, <laughs> which sounds obvious, you know. And then after that, Belle, my wife, and I were uh, recruited to become the directors at Native Seed Search in Tucson. And they have a seed company, and there was kind of a conflict. So we sold the seed company to one of our interns, and we did that for three years. And then we were recruited to start a Native Seed Search-type seed conservation organization for the whole Rocky Mountain West. Mm. And so we decided to do that. I still have my mailing list with 20,000 people. I had a 28-year track record with gardeners all over the Mountain West. So it just seemed like it would be easy to get something you know, up and running, easier than probably other people would for this same kind of idea. And so with John Kasha, a friend of mine, we put that together. We got some really great funding for the first three years. And um, the rest is history. We're almost six years old now. Wow. And um, we've... You know, we've got 3,000 seed stewards that have all dedicated themselves, signed up and pledged to grow and um, save and share seeds to at least one thing. We've got uh, over 100 grain trialists working on heritage and ancient grains in the Mountain West to help us and find out what works, where the emmers, the einkorns, the spelts, all the stuff that used to work here. And find out where it works. Does it work at 9,000 feet? Does it work down in the desert in New Mexico? I mean, the Mountain West has really got some extreme stuff. So we want to know what works where. And then they're helping to increase those seeds so we can give them to farmers. Yeah. And so that's really, you know, what the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance does. We inspire, we educate, and then we network everybody through this off-the-shelf software we have so that everybody can find everybody and list what they have and share among themselves. And that way it doesn't take our staff time to do that. So I feel really unburdened. The traditional nonprofit, so much of the energy, especially the large ones, goes to just taking care of the nonprofit and the buildings or the, and the people and all the stuff. And, and we don't have any of that. <laughs> you know, we've got four people, basically, that live in four different states that meet via Zoom 
mm-hmm. that can dedicate 80% or more of our energy and time educating and inspiring people. Beautiful. That's the way to grow a network. And our goal is real simple. We want the seeds for the Rocky Mountain West to come from the Rocky Mountain West, that they'll be adapted, that there'll be a huge new diversity in the Mountain West again, the way there was two generations ago. And with that, and with the knowledge and our network together, we can weather the storms that are coming, that are already here in many places. So, mm-hmm. Wow. There's a lot that you just kind of touched on there. I mean, you've been starting your first seed businesses back in the, the 70s. You've continued on, you've grown. I mean, know you've kind of traveled around the world collecting seeds and, and stories with those seeds and sharing them you know, freely with others. I think a lot of people that are new to gardening or even gardeners that have been around for a while. I mean, I've known a lot of yeah. you know, master gardeners. And when you start talking about seed, the, the the first thing that they start to look at is like the seed catalog or talking about the, you know, right. Johnny's or, you know, wherever it is that they're getting their, their seed from. And what I wanted to talk to you about was what is this big difference in seeds that we're growing locally, that we're saving locally versus ordering from, you know, any of the catalogs, even some of the small, smaller uh, seed producers out there that might be growing in Maine or someplace right. that's quite different from where you are. What are some really the advantages of saving your own seed? Well, you know, I think the seed industry, and I think there was profit motive in it. I don't think that was the whole thing. I think it was our, our culture, but largely since World War II, mm-hmm. we've um, created this um, cult of expertise. And, um, and home gardeners don't think that their seeds would be good if they saved them anyway right? They're not going to be as good as these experts are being done in universities or, or corporations and, you know, and, and frankly, the seed saving culture that's grown up so far, it reinforces that. So many of the basic seed saving books you open up, I, I'm thinking about Susan Ashworth's famous book, Seed to Seed, mm-hmm. which was Beautiful. done after 10 years of the Seed Savers Exchange in Decorah, Iowa, to try to put together all the tricks that all the seed savers from around the country had put, that had come up with, to actually just make the craft of seed saving easier for everyone. But you open up that book, and it's in Latin, the table of contents. It's all by family names, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, so when I opened that up, the first time I went, I don't want to learn Latin. I just want to save seeds. Like what, you know, what, what's going on here? And um, lots of times there's glossaries with all these terms. And then they hit you with things like inbred depression and separation distances for purity. And, oh, you can't save seeds from that in your own neighborhood because it may not breed true. Or you can't save seeds from hybrids, right? They're either sterile or they're not going to breed true. So, you know, all this, all these myths kind of rolled together is what I grew up with as a gardener. I think most of us did. Mm-hmm. In fact, the, the best gardener in my hometown, Judy Housel, told me one time that all American gardeners know they can't save seeds. You can't save American seeds. That was just a truth to her. And I go, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, but then I got me to thinking and, and um, almost everything she was growing was a hybrid out of a catalog. Mm. And if you try to save the seeds, you may not get what you planted, right? You know, the grandparents may show up or some combination of their characteristics. And so, you know, she just thought it was something we shouldn't do. So. So I think the number one thing I've learned along these lines, and what I would say to to gardeners is that um, that's the myth, that for 10,000 years, humans have been growing and saving seeds right where they are, with basically no technical knowledge. I mean, 99, I think Dr. Gary Nabin at the University of Arizona says that 99.9% of all the breeding, all all the significant breeding work done in plants was done before Mendel before we discovered even what genetics were. And it was done by people who largely didn't know what they were doing, except they knew enough to save the seeds from whatever worked for them. Mm-hmm. And that was better. And we know now biologically that there are millions of variables that interact on a plant as it goes through a season. And well, that there is- Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, I, there's not a lot of time to talk about it here. And this is, you can see now what we double click on when we, you get into seed school. Mm-hmm. Because these are really important points. But if you were going to college 
and you wanted to become a plant breeder in the United States of America in, 20, in 2020, almost all the programs in the United States now are for biotech. You know, there's, you can get into the math end of it at the University of Arizona now, the quantitative analysis, you know, the gene sequencing is really getting big, but it's some version of a really high tech version of plant breeding. There's very little what we call public plant breeding or traditional plant breeding taught in this country. But you would have to get your undergrad. And one of the books that's still used in undergrad breeding programs, even the biotech ones, is The Principles of Plant Breeding, all read. And in that book, there's some really interesting paragraphs. And one of them, and we quote this in our seed schools, it says something to the effect that nature itself can sometimes be more efficient and effective at selecting for characteristics that plant breeders can't even identify. Mm-hmm. You know, and then what's really interesting in the next paragraph, they go back off on their scientific breakdown and deconstruction of the whole thing. But just for a moment, they're admitting something that to me is just obvious. How did we get our food system? You know, almost everything we eat was a wild plant, you know, and they're inedible. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at uh, chiltepines or these little teeny super hot things. They're not like the peppers we have these days. Teosinte is the mother of all corn. It's a tropical grass that's 24 inches high. There's no yield from that. And they're rock hard little black things is all you can get off them. I mean, all of these foods were transformed through this simple act of saving seeds for something you liked right where you are. And so that's what you're giving up. When you buy your seeds in a catalog, you don't know where it came from. You don't know what forces and what momentum, I like to call it, it has for your particular likes, cultural, your flavors, or your environment, your now changing environment. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, and collectively, if we all do that, we're screwed. You know, we've got three companies now that are, you know, own and control 60 to 70% of the world's seeds. You know, and I don't see anything putting the brakes on the mergers and acquisitions in the seed industry, even the organic seed industry. And so Mm -hmm. those kinds of adaptations and the amount of diversity that those companies have is still shrinking. And so at this point in history, it's time for us to all wake up and reawaken this beautiful ritual that not only starts to give you something that's more adapted and parcel of your own environment so that it can weather the storms, but it brings you stories and connections. It may be the best community building device we've ever seen, you know, as witnessed by, you know, the 600 seed libraries that have started themselves, you know, around the world and over 400 in the United States and the seed exchanges, you know, every Saturday or Sunday, somewhere in Canada, they have a seedy Saturday or a seedy Sunday. And they become part of the fabric and people are getting to know each other. And gardeners aren't just exchanging seeds. They're exchanging knowledge about how we can all, hey, did you guys get that early frost? Or I got a new blight this year or whatever. It it just strengthens the whole community. So Mm -hmm. you get back into that stream of information and knowledge when you start growing and saving your own seeds. That's the other thing. And then maybe the most important thing is that you reconnect yourself. And I know this is one of the themes of your podcast. You reconnect yourself with maybe the most productive system humans can connect to. I mean, it is exponential how many seeds you get. I know. Once you start saving seeds, you have to get involved with the community or you feel guilty. It's like, (laughs) what am I going to do with all this stuff? Right? One tomato can give you enough seeds to last your own backyard garden for the rest of your life. And that's just one tomato off of one plant. What happens if you save it from two or three? So you can see how this starts to change the way people think about this things. It's not, we're not in an age of scarcity. We just forgot how productive we can be with this mm. beautiful gift of a seed system that's been given to us from 10,000 years of people performing these rituals. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of the distillation. <laughs> Long answer, short question. <laughs> I mean, Bill, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, just going back to this 10,000 year plus tradition, I mean, so for 10,000 years of agriculture, and even before that, we had kind of like more horticultural societies that were right. still, you know, essentially saving seed in some fashion or planting right. seed. So it's, it's this cultural legacy that we've been doing that's ingrained almost, it seems like in our DNA. And through that tradition, 
Can you talk a little bit about like just the diversity of the different crops that we've had and where they've kind of gone now? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, there are numbers around the world. There were around 1,500 different plants being eaten in large quantities, being produced and eaten in, in relatively large countable quantities in 1,900. Mm-hmm. And wow. as many as 50,000 plants have been eaten by humans. I think Dr. Gary Nabin again, did a study and claimed that he and Richard Felger, I think, um, uh, said it was possible there are 35,000 different plants eaten in North America in its history by humans. So there's huge diversity. You know, mm-hmm. so even when you get it 1900, the Industrial Revolution, and you bring it down, we still have 1500. You know, today 30 plants provide over 90 percent of human nutrition, and four provide 75 percent of all human calories consumed. Mm-hmm. And of those four, wheat, rice, corn, and uh, soybeans, we're down to just a handful of varieties owned by a handful of companies. Mm-hmm. And so you can kind of, that kind of gives you a picture of, of, of how this diversity loss, you know, at least among what most of us are eating, um, has um, evolved. There are, uh, there are claims that in 1900, and I think Norman Borlaug said this, he was the father of the Green Revolution and worked in wheat, um, that there were 30,000 varieties of wheat being grown around the world in 1900. Wow. 30,000. 30,000 varieties of wheat. And you know, what are came we down out of the, to now? Well, you know, I don't, you know, hundreds, but the, more importantly, they're almost all the same genetics. Mm. After Norman Borlaug, they all have, you know, some uh, very common genetic characteristics that are vulnerable given the right disease that will come. It's not if, it's when. That's biology. Mm-hmm. You have big food, you know, you're going to have something evolve to take advantage of it. And that's what we've done and set ourselves up. We've had a number of, you know, disasters. In our corn crop, we lost billions of dollars in corn, 1.8 billion or something in the Southern United States in 1980, you know, and we just lost a huge amount of corn uh, just three or four years ago because of drought in the upper Midwest. All the varieties, you know, have the same sort of environmental parameters. It gets too hot, none of it works. Hmm. Right. Whereas if you were growing your own kind or if you had 30,000 different kinds growing, some would make it and some wouldn't. It would just be part and partial of this natural system, you know, a resilient system. And so, yeah, 30,000 varieties is a lot. And what's even more disturbing to me, I was just in Montana where they grow a lot of wheat and um, almost everything that the farmers are being offered now are, is patented or mm. protected by a contract that says you can't save your own seeds. They're ending this system of farmers being able to save things that are adapted or work better on their own farms. Wow. And even though a lot of Montana wheat country looks the same, it's vastly different from the High Line all the way down to Bozeman and along the river valleys, the Yellowstone or whatever. And so even if you planted the same variety of wheat, you know, if they could save their own seeds from that stuff that worked best, within a relatively short period of time, those populations would start to evolve differently. And that Mm. creates diversity. And that's how we got 30,000 varieties in the first place. And so it's really an interesting and exciting to kind of open this back up again and go, whoa, look what we could do again. Because we don't even have to dream up what this world would look like. We just have to go back a couple of generations and lift up the rug and look at what we had Mm. and try to recreate a lot of that. Yeah, there's, there, again, there's so much we can be touching on there, but you mentioned the idea of resilience in, in our uh, food systems. And one of the things that we often look at in permaculture is just designing as trying to create functional and integrated ecosystems, right? Yes. And we know that when we start to look at ecosystems that are highly functional, one of the traits and attributes is that they have a lot of resilience or ability to kind of handle whatever gets thrown at it. And so when we look at our food supply and our seeds, as we begin to whittle those down into just a handful, so going from 30,000 different varieties of wheat to just like a a few that might all be derivatives of a single species, it sounds like that creates a very fragile uh, food system, correct? 
Correct. Yeah. Like leading to things like the potato famine, famine, right? And right. other activities like that. But the beauty, I think, of what you're talking about here is we are re-engaging back into that legacy that we have of planting the seed, seeing what's doing really well, what's not, and saving the ones that are either better tasting or just thriving and planting those out to the next year. And that simple act for a lot of people doesn't seem like a lot or even worthwhile, but has this potential to kind of bring back the diversity if I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah. And create those new varieties. Yes. And, you know, it's, it's so parallel to permaculture that, you know, when we started our seed schools, they were um, patterned after permaculture, the two week permaculture courses. That was what a great idea. Get people together for a couple of weeks. We do five to six day programs now, but it's mm-hmm. the same sort of idea. So if it, it, it was really born out of those ideas. And so one of the things that I usually try to close our seed schools with is this idea that in a thousand years, people are going to look back at this time. And with this understanding, clear, it's eighth grade biology, right? The more diversity, the more resilient your system is. The more working parts, the more you'll have parts at work, no matter what happens. And they'll look and they'll see this time where in our industrial age, we lost 90% of the diversity in our most essential activity, providing food for ourselves. And that at a time when things really started changing. I mean, that's a phenomenal place. That's where we are in the early 21st century. And so I got this, I I try to be an optimist and I think somebody's going to stand up with a glass of wine from their own local grapes in their own local garden, you know, and gathering, it'll be a potluck dinner or whatever. And somebody will say, Hey, you know, we ought to give a toast to those people in the early 20th century who actually figured out that we were on a path to lose the remaining diversity. You know, that they're patenting what's left. They're trying to make seed saving illegal in some parts of the world. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff going on. And these people, they, and this is the way I usually say it, is that these people look beyond the political bullshit of their time, the big screen distractions, technological distractions of their time, the religious dogma of their time, right? And a few people woke up and said, whoa, we better get to work. This is really important. They started a movement that actually grew back the diversity that we now have. We now have a food system that's resilient again, because that's what we need. So here's a toast to those people in the early 21st century who actually figured out the most important thing. Mm. I mean, there's not another system that we're talking about that is as important probably besides permaculture you got to capture your rainwater. You've got, you know, I mean, this is what we're talking about. This is, you know, I see this tying in directly with Bill Mollison and, and all the things, the beautiful things I learned in permaculture. And what's so beautiful about it to me, which is similar to permaculture, is that nobody from the outside can come and tell you what to do. Every place will be its own expert because you have different conditions to respond to and your seeds will be different. Nobody can bring in outside seats that are better. Mm-hmm. There's diversity all over the world, and we want to bring those things in. And I like to buy seeds and catalogs and get, you know, um, high on all the diversity that I see and, and the exciting new things. We should all do that, but let's bring as much diversity into our, our, our arena as we can. But let's not forget that the most important thing is to save the seeds from the best of that mm. and start to rebuild this foundation for a new for a new agriculture. And I woke up about a year ago after all this time and all this teaching and realized that this has to be a grassroots movement also. So I love that's like permaculture. There's no outside authority top down that can tell you how to run your permaculture program Mm -hmm. because you live in a different place. And the same is really true with seeds. And if we get millions of people growing and saving their seeds right where they are, then we will have a chance to recreate the diversity that we just had a couple of generations ago. And without that, we won't. Mm-hmm. And so no, no institution, no top-down, no government is going to save enough. There's nobody coming to help. That's why these seed libraries, I think, are so important in little communities, especially in the Mountain West. Some of those towns, half the people are on food stamps. 
And you can imagine a major disruption to the industrial food system. Oh, sorry, you guys. Grocery store is empty. You know, three days, there's no food in the stores. There's nobody there. There's Now what are we going to do, right? Mm-hmm. And somebody walks up and goes, oh, we have a seed library. Everybody calm down. We got enough seeds to get everybody started. It's already stuff that we've been growing and saving here, so we know at least some of it's, you know, adapted here. And a farmer goes, well, it's not uniform if there's garbage in there, I know there is because it's not uniform for me to use. And you go, wow, we know that, but we got this stuff to start with. So you teach classes and how to get it uniform and we'll scale up quickly and we'll all be okay. You know, that's sort of, I'm giving you a, a snapshot of my view of the future, yeah. why, why all of these communities should be involved in seed saving. Well, hopefully by now people are super fired up and want to start saving seeds. So for those that have never saved seeds before and are just wanting to kind of get into that process, what are some of the ways and, and simple things that people can start with to kind of get their feet wet? Well, I would say two things. First, go see if you aren't already a seed saver. Every time you have a volunteer plant come up in your garden, you've done it. You know, Greg Peterson, who's a friend of ours, the urban farm in Phoenix, walked out behind his chicken coop and there was basil growing. And he's going, wait a minute, I didn't plant basil here. Well, he had planted it four years before. Mm -hmm. And some of it had grown up and reseeded itself. Grown up and reseeded itself. Grown up and reseeded itself. It was four-year, self-selected, adapted to hot Phoenix backyard. Basil. Craig, you are such a spectacular (laughs) seed saver. Thank you very much, you know. He didn't even know it. So look around first. Secondly, if you're going to get into seed saving, start with the easy ones. I wrote a little book in 1992 around this idea. So instead of opening up a 20 or 25 or $30 seed saving book that starts with Latin or some of the other, you know, cult of expertise language that is disempowering, start with the easy ones. It's really easy to save the seeds to tomatoes, peppers, peas and beans, and lettuce. Mm -hmm. They're all largely self-pollinating plants means it doesn't matter if your neighbors are growing them. You're probably going to get what you planted again. Um, They're open pollinated or non-hybrid varieties. We start with normally, again, just to make it easier so you can kind of get a sense of the minor variations in a plant. So the ones you like better are the ones that actually survive where you are. And um, it's really easy to save the seeds out all of them. I mean, peas and beans are the seeds. We had a lady come into the store at Native Seed Search one time, and she had uh, yellow woman Indian beans. And we sold them there to eat in one-pound packages. And she had a package, and she was buying them. And she goes, "Um, can you tell me if you guys have any seeds for these beans for sale? (laughs) And we're just laughing. Like in your hand. (laughs) Yeah, you just bought a pound of them, you Mm -hmm. know? So, So those are easy. You know, tomatoes, you can squish them out. You can get a little more complicated, you know? My little book, Basic Seed Saving, is on uh, Amazon. You know, it's five bucks, I think, or 465 or something. Okay, Um, we can link to that. um, And so, you know, and they're... Frankly, as somebody said to me the other day, Bill, they said, probably all the instructions to save everything are on the internet now, if you'll just Google around and look. And there's how-tos or whatever. And so what's not there is how to start. Mm-hmm. You know, first of all, the, to open up those doors of the cult of expertise. You know, seed saving is not a big, dark, scary forest. You know, Hansel and Gretel have been here and there are breadcrumbs in and we can find our way home. And that's what we're doing. And so basic seed saving, I always saw the little booklet as, as part of that. So hopefully that helps. Yeah. I mean, I think you also brought up an important point that the information is out there and that can almost be overwhelming because now it's like you have all these different people telling you that there's only one way to do it. Right. We've all been doing this. And, you know, like, honestly, what's the worst thing that could happen if you take some seeds, you save them and you plant them out the next year? What, they don't come true to type? Right. Really, but what does that mean? Well, yeah, as Dr. Carol Depe says, what's the worst thing that happens if you make a genetic mistake, right? It's, it gets messed up with something or doesn't breed true as we've been taught or whatever. What's the worst thing that happens as a gardener? Yeah, you eat it. You still eat. You're yeah. still gardening. 
This is all fluff on top. doesn't matter. And in fact, some of the greatest breakthroughs in agriculture have happened just like that. Mm-hmm. You know, Waltham butternut squash was an unknown, unwanted cross in the back of an insurance salesman in Pennsylvania in the 60s. That's how we got the world's largest selling winter squash. And it really hasn't been changed much since then. Mm. It was a mistake. The whole history of agriculture is a mistake in some ways. Nobody ever dreamed up sweet corn the way we have today. A guy bit into a cob of field corn in 1900 out in a field and went, wait a minute, this is different. Save this. Mm. I mean, we don't even have the ideas to dream up what we've been given and gifts from agriculture. But now that we're new seed savers, we know we can make as many mistakes as we want. We're still going to eat them. We're here to have fun. We're doing the most important thing humans could be doing right now. We're helping to recreate, you know, a basic level of diversity so, so that we can survive for the future, you know. And now we're going to be um, looking for those breakthroughs in agriculture just in case, right? So we're going to unleash, you know, unlimited new possibilities on us. And we're going to switch our mindsets. We're not looking to breed true or to make things uniform. We don't have to. Gardeners don't have to do that. I think that's the biggest myth or the one that has kept most people from saving their seeds is that, and, and I say it this way, is that the rules for seed saving for industrial agriculture are misapplied to home gardens. Mm-hmm. If you're a big farmer and you ha- you're depending on your crop for your dollars, it's got to be done on a certain day because the harvesters are here. You need uniformity. You need predictability. And that is complicated to get into large populations of plants. And you have to pay attention to inbred depression and, and making sure that things breed somewhat true. The, 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 there is no true in a garden. Never saw true out there. You know, it's an ideal that we strive toward, but it's not there. So, but as much as you can, you want it to be uniform so that they'll make more money. I get that. But home gardeners have always been the ones that could experiment and let things go wild and find new things. In fact, that's our job. The smallholder farmers of the world created our agriculture. Every plant that you love, from okra to um, cucumbers to squashes to tomatoes to peppers to whatever, were done largely by indigenous people somewhere at some point. Or even, you know, modern people for some crops maybe only took three to four hundred years in a relatively modern era to create all the sizes and shapes of peppers that we have. They were taken to Hungary, and we got paprika, and they were taken to Thailand. We got the little Thai hots, and they were taken to India, and you know, and so, so we're the ones that do that. And then later, if you need to, you can scale them up, make them uniform. You can go to the university. You can study all this stuff. That's all good stuff. You know, and we've got the Organic Seed Alliance, which has tremendous courses and on-farmer breeder you know, workshops to get you if you want to take the next stage mm-hmm. step and, and get your master's and or PhD in this sort of thing, because it's, it's really a beautiful and incredible career. Um, but that's not diversity. That's not fun. That's not permaculture. That's what we want and need to unleash, I think, right now. And so that's why we stay focused on that. And I appreciate you bringing up that perspective that you know, for all of this time period, like all that diversity that has been built up wasn't coming from the universities. It wasn't coming from, you know, quote unquote, educated individuals. It was coming from everybody, all just kind of rolling those genetic dice, planting seeds out there and seeing what came from it. Right. Yeah. No, you're right. So taking that chili and making it, you know, into the Thai chilies or the other ones. And one of the stories... One of the stories we tell in Seed School is about James L. Reed, who was a man who lived in Missouri and moved to northern Illinois and brought his family. And he had a dent corn, a yellow dent corn. It was about a 20 row. It's a big fat one, really beautiful. And he brought his corn and planted it. It didn't grow. Mm-hmm. And his other neighbor farmers came around at the end of the year and said, oh, you did the same thing we did. You brought your corn up here and it doesn't work, does it? And he goes, God, I just got a few. You know, This is going to be hard. And they go, oh, you're going to have to grow flint. 
The Flint corns, it turns out, were taken way north, even into southern Canada, way earlier than the other corns. That's just part of its migration up from Oaxaca, mm. its ancestral home where it was first, you know, discovered and, uh, and bred. And so um, they said, what you'll have to do, I mean, if you want some of yours, just mix it in and, and plant and see what happens. So that's what he did. And he got a few, few more. So he taught his boys, he had four sons, how to save the seeds. And for 40 years, that's what they did on the family farm. And he ended up winning the Illinois State Fair for best corn mm. 40 years later, just in his field, trying to get his own corn for himself. There's no university. Next year, won the World's Fair wow. in Chicago, about 1900. Mm. James L. Reed's Yellow Dent Corn went on to be the best-selling open-pollinated corn in the world in the 20th century. Wow. That's the, and it came out of a family farm program. That's what every listener that you have that gets involved in saving seeds in their own backyards has a chance to change everything that way by just paying attention. That's all we're asking for. And actually, the, the danger isn't that you'll pay attention. The danger is that you'll pay too much attention, that you'll mm -hmm. go down a rabbit hole and you'll get way too into this, like many of the, my favorite seed savers now. These guys are just crazy for this stuff. They just never come <laughs> back. It's just so much fun and so abundant, you know, and so exciting. Yeah. Well, some people might be listening and hearing like, wow, that corn might be amazing, but it took 40 years of somebody like saving seed to get there. And I know that you've traveled around the world and met with different people that have been saving seeds. And, and I remember hearing stories that you would tell of traveling into the Russia region and finding things like tomatoes that can handle the, the cold or even watermelons that were being grown right. there. Right. Do you have any um, stories related to those? Oh, I've got lots of stories about stuff like that. So I guess, you know, let me just preface what I'm saying by don't underestimate how quickly things can change. Mm -hmm. And don't underestimate how quickly 40 years can go by. Yeah. Because, because the James L. Reed story was just been duplicated by Dave Christensen and painted mountain corn. He's been working on it for more than 40 years now in his own backyard in Montana. And it's now grown on all every continent and has been called the earliest, fastest maturing, most nutritious, most resilient corn on the planet. And so that's just another project I saw. And I knew Dave 20 years ago. Mm. The last 20 years went really fast. <laughs> you know, if you're young, like they say in the investing world, you've got all the marbles. You could, you know, this isn't complicated. doesn't take a lot of um, uh, resources to do. But if you've got the time, you could really make a difference in your area. And I guess that's the other thing I would say about um, getting into seed saving. If it seems overwhelming, pick one plant that you're passionate about, something you love to eat or has a story in your family, whatever, your plant and start saving seeds from that one thing first and make that your deal like Dave did with his painted mountain corn. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's probably the best story that I've been around. I just got to spend a, a couple of days with Dave up in Montana. It was just so wonderful. He lives on $9,000 a year and he has gifted the world with one of the great crops that's grown everywhere. I tried to get some seeds grown for my little seed company once down in Argentina and they were growing tomatoes for me in the wintertime, which was great because it's their summer mm -hmm. and had this really neat thing, you know, because if I didn't have enough, I could get it done during the winter and, and that way I'd always have enough for my customers. And so after they were really successful, I said, Hey, can you guys do corn? And they go, no, 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 no. We're not doing any corn because corn um, is an outcrossing plant wind pollinated. Mm -hmm. So they didn't want anybody else's corn pollen in there because they're working on their corn. I go, really? What kind is it? And they go, oh, it's this really great corn called Painted Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's, it's the best thing we've ever found, you know? And, so, and they're probably taking it in a different direction by saving totally those. Totally different. Yeah. yeah. And that's what should happen. That's what's always happened. You know, so Carol Deppe, Dr. Carol Deppe, who taught genetics at Harvard for 25 years and wrote a really great book called Breed Your Own Backyard Garden Vegetables, not save your own seed, but breed your own. She's a mm -hmm. breeder. Yeah. She took painted mountain corn and she's really into flavor. 
So she started tasting the individual kernels for flavor and found out that certain colors tasted better to her than others and started breeding for that. And so now she's got a variety of corn called Magic Mana, which mm. is Painted Mountain for flavor. And wow. it looks totally different. And so, yeah, that's how it should work. And that's, and I just want to make a footnote point here. We are heading into an era where more and more seeds are being protected. That's the word they use around the world. They're carrying either PVP, plant variety protection on them, or they're actually being outright patented, like they're new inventions, which I just don't understand. Yeah. How, you know, 8,000 years of corn breeding, and then you tweak things a little bit, and now you own it. I mean, it's just like this insane notion. And then more and more contractual stuff that's coming from the seeds you buy, especially if you get to a wholesale level. And all those things want to stop seed saving mm. and make it illegal. And if we stop seed saving, then we stop that adaptation. And that stops the creation of diversity. And so that's why we're hopefully within this next year, we're going to roll out a national campaign for no patents on seeds and come up with a new um, safe seed pledge. The, the one that's out there now says, I, I promise not to grow or buy or sell seeds to genetically modified plants. And this is going to s simply say, I promise not to buy or sell the seeds to plants that are utility patented. Just doesn't make sense to me. And we're um, trying to come up with a little uh, logo that can be on every seed packet and catalog or whatever. If, yours, if nothing in your catalog is patented, then that would be good. And this is important because I won't mention the catalog, but some of our favorite catalogs that sell certified organic seeds now have a lot of utility patented seeds in them. And in fact, 40%, 42% of the lettuces in one of the new catalogs I just saw that market gardeners all over the United States use. These are certified organic. They're open pollinated. Lettuce, easy to save, and mm -hmm. now they have utility patents on them. And people don't even know. And so that's why it becomes important for us to do this education about it. Well, let's go a little bit down that rabbit hole. So if, <laughs> if somebody sure. is already growing one of these seeds, like the lettuce, uh -huh. you know, that has one of the patents on there, and they were to save seeds and plant that out in their garden next year, mm -hmm. um, because these are typically... or. Right. or especially something like lettuce is most likely an open pollinated variety. Yeah. So it's, it's going to come exactly, you know, very similar to its parents. Right. What's the worst thing that could happen? The worst thing that could happen. You know, at this point, the worst thing that happens is that you have tacitly and um, implicitly supported an agricultural system mm. that is taking this idea and papering over as quickly as it can the whole third world. We're from America, and even organic farmers are buying and using utility patented seeds, so it must be okay. You know, and for me, that's heartbreaking. Organic mm -hmm. was supposed to mean we were doing the right thing. And I was just in Rome at an international conference, and um, there are hundreds of millions of smallholder farmers that are being sold a bill of goods. So the basic story coming out of the United States and in industrial agriculture and the big gene giants, the big seed companies, is that you need to privatize seeds. They need to be protected in order for there to be innovation. We're here to help you. Wow. And so I, you know, I showed up at an international conference from the United States, which turned a lot of heads. We did, um, Bell and Leanne Hill, our program director. And it was like, oh, you're on our side? the small holder farmer side of things, it took quite a while to, to get used to that idea because basically that's not the side that we take internationally around these kinds of issues. And it just became really clear to me. You know, when I say that um, we should not use utility patented seeds, I'm, uh, I can feel those 300 million farmers standing behind me saying, don't do this, you know? I think 60% of the countries in Africa are uh, um, honoring the patents in utility, uh, on utility patented seeds or other kinds of contractual protections, even though the WTO, the original trade agreements that got them into all this whole thing, allow a farmer's exemption for them to save their own seeds. You know, farmers have always had the right just to save their own seeds for obvious reasons. It starts that adaptation and diversity that's going on. And it's only with the really with um, utility patents mm. 
coming out of the United States, the most restrictive intellectual property ever allowed on plants. And it was, it's not legislation. It was just a Supreme Court case that wow. Clarence Thomas ruled in. And he had been a former attorney for Monsanto. If you just mm-hmm. kind of went the whole backstory of how this is happening. And so, you know, so come back to, it depends on where you are or what you're thinking, what you want to do with your life. So I'm in a nonprofit. So what I would say is that be aware that you're not supposed to save the seeds to your utility patent. You're not even supposed to allow that lettuce to go to seed. Wow. They have total and complete control over the reproduction of it. You know, that's the law. Okay. In India, Vanda Nashiva organized 10,000 farmers around patented rice and they all grew it. And then they all passed it out in their own communities. And then they all mailed in 10,000 postcards to Monsanto saying, thank you very much. We're all growing this beautiful, wonderful rice and we're sharing it as freely as we can. <laughs> and they dropped the patent. Wow. Frankly, they probably don't have an enforcement technique. Where the worst thing that could happen, another potential worst thing is that when we, and I, so I wasn't part of it, my wife Belle was on a committee with the American Association of Seed Control Officials after a seed library in Pennsylvania was shut down because it didn't have a commercial license. I don't know if you heard this story, it was three or no. four years ago. Yeah, just Dr. Zook, who is the seed control official for Pennsylvania, came home from dinner one night, looked up on the TV, and there was the opening of a new seed library in his town. And we're giving away seeds, and it's free to check them out. And he's going, wait a minute, I'm the seed control official for the state of Pennsylvania. I didn't authorize that. What's going on here? So he went down and closed them down. He said, you don't have a license. You didn't do any germ tests. You can't prove that they read true. He went through all the commercial rules to sell seeds in Pennsylvania. The argument started, a seed library is not a commercial seed operation. Well, people are getting their seeds there, you know, and it took about a year and Bell was on the committee actually and reached an agreement. It's okay to have seed libraries. And the American Association of Seed Control Officials actually passed an amendment to what they call their recommended uniform state seed laws that says seed libraries are okay. They don't have to have commercial licenses. They don't fall under the same umbrella with two conditions. No noxious weeds can be found in there and no patented seeds Mm. in your library. So your friend might grow and save their seeds. They love them. Nobody even even knew that they were patented to begin with. They get passed around in a seed exchange or whatever, and they end up in your local seed library. And if 42% of the lettuces in one of the most popular catalogs in the country are patented, how long before a bunch of them are in there and in walks a seed control official? That's my fear. Mm. We don't even want to, you know, and, and so frankly, what we've been trying to do is write and ask for lists. I, every year I write to all the seed companies and say, I need a list of all the varieties that you sell that are patented. And guess what? None of them supply a list at this point. Oh, wow. So you don't it's even like know. The, we don't even know in some mm-hmm. cases. I found mismarked ones. If you go to the U.S. Trade and Patent and Trade Office um, uh, website and search for variety names, a third of them don't come up because they weren't patented for their variety names. They're patented for a disease resistance or heat tolerance in brassicas was patented. The other day, a purple in lettuce was patented. This is where we're that, kind of that's going ridiculous. With this. So is that leading down to say if you grow a brassica that is heat resistant now that it potentially has that gene in there that you're now breaking the law? Is that how that? Well, so here's what happens: is they would have to enforce it, mm-hmm. and you know, the, uh, realistically, probably nobody will um, unless it gets to a commercial level. Yeah. If you're a breeder and you come up with a new variety and it's got that specific trait and you start competing with them in the marketplace, then they would have a financial incentive to do that. But yeah, theoretically it is. And, and if you're thinking about seed, running a seed library where the, at least the, the rules are no patented seeds, it, it would seem as though that would be important. So, you know, our campaign about no patents on seeds is largely about education. You know, I don't, I personally feel like I should get in the way of anybody buying seeds. If you want to buy patented seeds and use them and you really like them, that's, you know, go for it. But I want companies themselves and organizations that educate about seeds to all be open, honest, and transparent about it. 
this is what we're going to do. Let's all know what we're doing. And let's let consumers decide whether they want to be part and parcel of that kind of a system. Because the privatization of seats, for me, is, just doesn't work. And in an era where we are seeing so much change around um, sexual rights, you know, and, and racial awakening, and then especially cultural awakening with indigenous peoples. I mean, how can you deal with indigenous peoples with integrity and say, we own these seats? Mm. You just can't. You can't. You know, it's largely indigenous women, as Dr. Nabin used to say, are the ones that did all the work. 238 generations from corn, you know, that came out of Oaxaca, that's fed every civilization on our continent. You know, that work was done. And so now we can own it. I mean, you, you want to talk about decolonizing? Let's just get rid of that, that one first. That's my, that's my thing. So A lofty goal for sure. Well, you know, but not impossible. And in mm-hmm. fact, practical and necessary, I would say. Yeah. I mean, I think this, I think you've made a, a very important case for like, hey, we need to get back out there, start saving our seeds creating the seeds that are going to thrive in our local communities. And along that line, you also brought up this idea of seed libraries. And for people that are new to that concept, can you just define what you mean by a seed library? Seed libraries got started in the United States. It's a uniquely U.S. concept, some form of a community getting together and sharing seeds and saving them together is in every part of the world. And so some, in some communities, they call them uh, community seed banks. In other places, they're, sm- they're actually small seed companies, you know. But we have libraries in this country. Thank you, Carnegie, you know. And the idea that you would have a place where people could go in and check out their seeds the way they would a book. And the idea is that if and when you can, you learn how to grow them, save some seeds, and check in twice as many. And then that way you can grow a, a community and public resource. It, with this functions somewhat the same way as an annual seed exchange might. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of areas have those now. And so like once a year, there's a big potluck dinner or party or whatever, and people all come together and they talk to each other and exchange seeds. And that's really the best because you get to talk to people and there's information exchange. But if you move to town the day after the seed exchange, you have to wait till the next year. So a seed library becomes a place where you can go and people can go in all year long and do this. That's really all it is. Mm -hmm. And every seed library is different. If you're thinking about starting one or want to tap in and find out where they are, seedlibraries.net, the best web source for that sort of thing. They've got a listing of the 600 sister seed libraries around the world. People try to keep that up. Wow. Rebecca Newburn who's a great permaculturist, is still in charge with that. And it's just a great resource. At the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, we have a directory with our software so people can list their seed library on it and, and what they specialize in or if they have needs or whatever. And then anyone else that comes to our, our site can pull up a map, see where they all are, and click on one and get all the information and connect with those people directly. And we have 82 seed libraries have come out of nowhere into the Rocky Mountain West. Just in the, I was on there the other day and it just keeps growing. And so, wow, this is really powerful. You know, the, the, there was one in Wyoming and then there was another one. And then those two are helping the third one that just popped up. And you can kind of see how this works. Incredible. So it's really just decentralizing the seed system and, and bringing it back to the people. Keeping it in the comments, as we've been talking about. So don't underestimate how powerful this can be. We helped start a seed library when we were at Native Seed Search in Tucson, the Pima County Library. Mm -hmm. A lot of these seed libraries are now in libraries, which is kind of a natural fit. And it turns out the old card catalogs, they were throwing away because they're all going computers, fit seed packets perfectly. So this transition has been made. But Pima County now has 11 seed libraries and there are 22 branches throughout southern arizona wow so 50 percent. they're all hooked with interlibrary loan you can go into oh. any branch pull up all the varieties on the computer they will deliver them to your library if you don't have a seed library there wow it was three years ago they had checked out twenty thousand packets that was the last 
you know, I've heard now that it's over 50,000 packets a year are being checked out of the Pima County Library and half, they finally crossed the threshold. It took a number of years, but half are being checked back in. Wow. Half the varieties. And so you move to Tucson, you want to figure out what's going on, go down to the library, check out Mrs. Burns Lemon Basil. Mm. It was brought to Tucson in 1898 by Barney Burns' mother, her grandmother. And it's still being grown in the alleys and up and down through Tucson's weather, you know. And when I lived in Tucson, that was one of my favorite basils to grow. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. So anyway, I'm giving you kind of, you know, if you move to a new town, now there's a whole other kind of resource for you to tap into and get seeds and information and a built-in community. And that's, that's nice. That's what we're going to need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you, Bill. Um, just on kind of like our final thoughts here. If people are interested in learning more about seed saving and some of the work that you do, where can people find you? RockyMountainSeeds.org. Excellent. It's Rocky, Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. Dot org. Uh-huh. And we have an educational program coming up in May. We're calling it the Seed and Grain Experience in the Jimi Hendrix sense. Are you experienced? <laughs> We've got some really high-level teachers lined up. It's at a geothermal hot springs permaculture site that um, is being prepared for us. We're going to have our own hot and cold running waterfalls to soak in. We'll have soak breaks. You know, it'll be a five-day program and we'll live on site and all the meals will be fresh, local, organic food. And so that's, you know, kind of, I'm giving you a sense of how we're evolving. We do uh, one-day seed schools in a day and have in the past, you know, we go where we're pulled sort of. They've got to kind of fit. We need uh, organizations that really want to have us and will help sponsor us. We need fresh, organic, local food if we're going to do a day-long program. And so, yeah, that's really the best. We've got our seed school online. You can get to that through our website also. And that's Greg Peterson, a mutual friend of ours, does those through the Urban Farm. Um, Once a month, I do a podcast, a Seed Chat podcast through the Urban Farm podcast. So you can uh, check that out. The one we just did was on seed catalogs. Got a really lively discussion about seed catalogs and learned a lot. And that'll be up. It'll probably be, take them about three weeks before that shows up as a podcast. So look for that. Great. And I could definitely vouch for all of those. I, I listen to your monthly uh, podcast there with Greg and always get a lot out of it. Uh, the seed schools have been fantastic. I remember when you started that up in Arizona, what, 10 plus years ago. Yeah. I think I swung by ten, for that first ten. one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, you're, you know, and you've always been important to me and what you've done and how you've stayed dedicated. And I love that you're doing this now with the education. This is the important part is getting these words out. So thank you for what you're doing. Well, thank you, Bill. I mean, you've always been just a huge inspiration in what I do and, and keeping that, that spirit alive and the optimism, because, you know, with the challenging times that we've been in, it's always just. I mean, so depressing when you, you know, turn on the news and read story after story of just nothing but negative. And then when we start to look at like the possibility, whether, you know, we're talking about seeds today and last uh, time we had a conversation here with Brad Lancaster talking about water, it's like there's potential. We all have this ingrained in us that we can get out there and do it. And I love that you've been promoting this for, for so long. And, you know, getting so many people fired up on seeds. Well, if you're depressed, you're just not playing with them enough. <laughs> <laughs> True words to live by right there. Yeah. yeah. No, I just thought of that. It was <laughs> like, you know, I just think about how much fun I've been having. And that's what I'm doing is more and more I'm coming home to grow my own corn. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's my path now. I just love what it teaches me every day. So yeah, there's, there's a lot to be learned there. Yeah. So Thank you. And I hope to have you on the show sometime in the future. Anytime. Well, that wraps up our discussion with Bill McDormand. I hope you enjoyed the show and I hope that you got fired up and excited to get out there and start saving some seeds. This is part of our 10,000 year old plus tradition, our human tradition that keeps us tied to the places that we are. Seed saving is so important for growing into the future especially in this time of climate change where we are not sure of how the weather conditions are going to be, whether it's going to be hotter, colder, 
more rain, less rain, you know, all of these factors that go into it. Well, saving seeds ensures that we have the diversity and the stability and the resilience built into this system. So get out there, save some seeds, start with the easy ones, the peas, the beans, the tomatoes, the peppers, lettuce. Those are some of the easiest ones to, to save from. From there, start saving seeds of other things and just experiment. I mean, honestly, what is the worst thing that can happen if you plant out some seeds that may be crossed with something else? That's where the beauty lies, because all of a sudden you create things that maybe weren't even out there before, and you get to be in control of that. You get to choose the characteristics, the flavors, all of that of those particular plants that you want to grow. Right? And then once we've saved our own seeds and we're growing this, we can begin to share with our neighbors, get them fired up to start saving seeds, organize ways of exchange, whether it's just in a neighborhood group or as Bill was getting into the seed libraries. You know, is there a local place that we can all establish where we can hold on to these seeds and begin to share them amongst our local community. Show notes for this episode, including all of the links that Bill mentioned, can be found on our website, permacultureforthefuture.com slash episode four. And if you enjoyed the show, please get on iTunes and give us a rating and review. This helps us reach a wider audience and it helps get more people involved in taking responsibility for making the world a better place. So see y'all next week. On next week's show, we have a very special guest. We have Peter McCoy, author of Radical Mycology, who's going to break down all about fungi and their roles in the garden and ecosystems and how we can all manage for mushrooms. All right, see you next week. 